For the last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus' words to the church in the book of Revelation. The ascended Christ speaks to us, the people of God. And here we have his word to the next two churches in that series. These are two communities who are surrounded by idolatry, by communities of people who, the the people around them in their towns have the very opposite instincts to these Christian communities. They, They do not worship Christ. They worship all sorts of other gods. And inside these communities, there are people who are tempted to compromise. Some are openly advocating compromise with the false worship around them. But Christ says to his bride, stay faithful to me, don't compromise. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to hear his word to the church in Pergamum, and then to the church in Thyatira, because they have really the same issue. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who have hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, great trouble, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give you to each of you according to your works." So how do we make sense of these really quite hard words of Jesus Christ to the churches? Well, to understand these letters, the the first sentence of the letter is almost always really indicative of what Christ has to say. And the beginning of the, the letter to the church in Pergamon is really important. He says, I know where you dwell. It's like Jesus saying, I know where you live. And what you've got to understand is that these are both real cities of idols, of idol worship. In fact, he goes on, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
And there's so much idol worship, there's so much worship given over to different Greek and Roman gods in those towns, it's very hard to know what he's talking about when he says Satan's throne. He could be describing the 44-foot statue given over to the worship of Zeus, which stood on the Acropolis, the great large hill kind of which overlooked the town of Pergamon. That if you looked from kind of miles around, what you would see is this great throne to Zeus signifying their worship of this deity, this false god. Or perhaps it's the temple to Dionysus, which is essentially the the Greek god given over to debauchery, to wine and uh, essentially the Roman god is also known as Bacchus, the god of wine and pleasure. And in that uh, temple, they would have uh, covered an altar with raw meat, they, some of you are thinking, this sounds quite good. This is, what, what's, wrong, what's wrong with this? Uh, but they covered it with raw meat, and there would have been copious amounts of alcohol consumed, such that they've excavated a vomitarium, where after consuming so much, they would have gone, gone and vomited, and there's all sorts of sexual debauchery going on. Or perhaps this is uh, the, talking about the Ascapelion, the, uh, the local hospital, basically, given over to the god Ascapelius that if you wanted to go and get healing, you needed to give a votive offering to the god Ascapilius. I'll stop trying to say that name. None of you are classicists. You probably have no idea how to say it, just like me. Um, the point is, idolatry is, is, is woven into the fabric of this culture. If you want to get healing, if you want to be part of the community, if you want to really participate in communal life, then it involves idol worship. Thyatira, the other community, is a working city where people would have all sorts of manual trades. And, and what you've got to understand is even in those uh, activities, those work, their working life, idol worship would have been in- integral to that. They would have been part of trade guilds and kind of all the metal workers would have got together on a regular basis. And even then, part of that would have been involved idol worship, would have been said, right, we're going to meet, eat this meal, but before we do that, we'll give a great kind of votive offering to the, the deity of our trade guild. And even that would have involved idol worship. And these people have faithfully not bowed down to those idols. That's why he describes Antipas, who was, according to church history, the leader of the church in Pergamon, who was, according to some sources, roasted alive, uh, killed for his unwillingness to bow down to idols. And there's many positives that Jesus has to say to these communities. He says, I see your faith. I see your perseverance. I see your love. Remember the Ephesian church, the first one we looked at a couple of weeks ago? They had all the right activities, but they lacked love. He said, no, I can see your love, but Jesus has one big thing to say to both these communities, and that that is that they tolerate false teachers. They tolerate false teachers. He speaks about two names, Balaam and Jezebel. And what's interesting is those are obviously not their names. Those are two figures in Old Testament history that are prominent for, one, for the same thing, which is taking the people of Israel away from the true worship of the living God and leading the people of Israel to worship Baal, to worship false deities. And you see the same uh, description describing what they're doing. He says, verse 14 Uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And then verse 21 in Thyatira, it's the same but the opposite way around. It says, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There are voices inside these communities who are really saying, what's the harm 
What's the harm? Shouldn't we just go and practice and participate in the same idol worship of the people around us? What is such a big deal? And he says he's leading them into sexual immorality and worship of idols. Now, I think this is both literal and metaphorical. It's literal because it's very likely that to worship those idols would have involved eating food sacrificed to idols and practice of sexual immorality. That was part of the, the deal. But it's also metaphorical. It's actually saying, in a way, these, these voices are leading you away from your true bride, so away from your, your true spouse, so to speak, and leading you as a community into spiritual adultery. You say, when you're listening to this, you're asking, why does Jesus take this so seriously? And, and you've got to hear, by the way, he does take this seriously. He says to them, you know, think about what he's saying to Jezebel. He's saying, we've got to remove this false prophet from your, amongst you. You've got to take her out. She can't have her speaking in this community. It's dangerous. He said he's brought suffering on her so that she might be humbled, that she might repent and turn around from what she's doing. It sounds really foreign to our ears. Why does Jesus take this? And by the way, it's interesting. He says, I'm going to kill her children. I don't think he's talking literally there. I think he's talking about ending her work, that there'll be no more children of her deception, so to speak. There'll be no more people dragged away from her, dragged away from the Lord by this voice. So then you ask yourself, why does Jesus take this so seriously? Why does Jesus take this idea, this, this false worship, as such a threat to the life of these communities? And really, the picture that I want you to see here is one of adultery. It's one of adultery. Remember Ephesians chapter 5. It says Christ and the church are like a husband and wife. It says the people of God are to be to Christ what a wife is to her husband. That they love Christ. They're devoted to him. There's, a, there's an exclusive loving relationship that says I am yours and you are mine. And that is what defines how the people of God are to relate to Christ. One of commitment one of devotion, one of affection, and one of exclusivity. One that doesn't compromise, that doesn't say, I'll be pulled to the left or to the right by other lovers, so to speak. Instead, I remain committed to my true husband. And then you see the seriousness. Maybe some of you have experienced someone cheating on you. Maybe some of you have watched someone else be the victim of adultery. Or perhaps just for a moment, think about how that would feel the sense of betrayal involved in adultery, the sense of humiliation and shame to be the victim of adultery, the sense of outrage, the sense of, are you just making a mockery of everything our relationship stands for? To see a bride betray her husband, to see her find other lovers, is, is deeply offensive to the idea of what love really looks like. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't depart from me don't go and find and worship these other lovers, so to speak. Instead, be uncompromising in your love for me. He's jealous for his bride. He's jealous for his bride. And so it means that he's calling us to be an uncompromising people, both in what is taught and, how we, and what is proclaimed in the church, but also in the individual lifestyles represented by the people of God. Christ is calling for an exclusivity here. And I think this is, this is relevant for us for a few reasons. This is really important, I think, that we hear Christ's word to the church for a few reasons. The first is I think this speaks directly to the cultural moment that we're in. Because it's this, this exclusivity that Christ calls for. This, this 
sense of, that Christ wants all of your heart and that he would kind of say, no, do not tolerate these other lovers, that, that feels narrow-minded to us. This sense that he would say, remove this woman from amongst you. This sense that he would say, I want all of you and you cannot tolerate these other gods. It feels exclusive, narrow-minded. It's what it's Christians are kind of known for being judgmental. And, and, and it's, it's in a sense everything that our world finds unappealing about Christianity. And what I want you to see, in a sense, is to reverse how you understand and to see the, the rightness of that exclusivity. To see that if we really love Christ, that exclusivity is, is the only right response to him. It also redefines our understanding of what love is. You see, we, in our world today, love is taken to be tolerance and acceptance. If you really love me, then you'll tolerate me, and then you'll accept me as I am. But Christ's love is, is much more than that. This is the, the Christ who has burning eyes of fire, who says, I am yours and you are mine and I want all of you. I'm not willing to tolerate you with your half-hearted desires. I want to change you. I want, I want every part of you. It's, it's much more than just I tolerate you. As I will tolerate no other gods in your life. I want all of you. So he calls you to an exclusive loving relationship with him. I want Christian, if you're a Christian here, I want you to hear Christ's call to exclusivity, to put away other loves and to come and embrace your spouse. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to, to hear and to see Christ's call here that he is the one who wants every part of you, who wants all of you. And that is, that is, Christ will take nothing less than that as you consider what does it mean to be a Christian. Hear that Christ wants every part of your life. This is not just some sort of vague allegiance to a club. This is not a, a, a kind of sticker that you put on your bumper stick seat. Not that many of you have bumpers, but if you did, it's much more than that. It says, no, this is Christ taking every part of your life. That is what he wants. And I think this has both communal and individual implications, and I want to open those up for you. And then I want to crucially show you how, because this is difficult. Christ is saying, don't, don't take, go along with the rest of the culture around you. Don't go and bow down to these idols. It's hard, as these guys would have stood at the window watching the great Dionys cult of Dionysus trooping up the main street on the way to the temple to debauch themselves in, out, in sexual debauchery and alcohol and all sorts of other things, they're looking on, saying, I can't be part of that. That's difficult. So we have to say, how is this possible? So first of all, it causes, calls us to be an uncompromising community. Christ is calling them to reject false teachers because they're uncompromisingly committed to the real, to the authentic, to the genuine Christ. So too, we must be a community that is relentlessly committed to preaching and worshipping the real Christ. You've got to hear the ease of cultural compromise that they, they, these people would have felt as they looked on to the cultic ceremonies that they couldn't be part of, as they felt excluded from their um, various different trade guilds or, or, or you know, even the possibility of losing their life for their exclusivity in this way. Maybe they can't go to the hospital. Maybe they can't eat a meal with their fellow metal workers in, in Zeus's honor. Why is this? It's, it would be so easy to hear these false teachers and say, yeah, let's give in. Because we all want to belong. That is the human impulse. We all want to retain some sense of respectability in a world that does not tolerate Christian orthodoxy. In a world that thinks Christians are weird, 
cultish, narrow-minded, and perhaps if you're here as you're not a Christian, you listen to me thinking, yep, all of those things are true. Um, in a world that thinks that, there's a part of us that just wants to, just wants to be normal, just wants to look normal and to, and to kind of fit in with everybody else. Sometimes this, we want to adapt and compromise, not just to fit in, but also out of a misplaced evangelistic passion. We want to give the world what it wants to hear. But that's dangerous. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. He talks about that a time coming when people will not tolerate uh, true teaching, but they will instead have itching ears because they won't tolerate sound doctrine. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Just as Christ puts his finger on these false teachers who are leading the people away from him, I think there are voices inside the church today, or wearing the label of church and Christianity, who have the same desire to compromise, who will shift the presentation of Christ, that they're no longer presenting the authentic Christ out of either a desire to look and become, uh, to achieve some respectability or out of a misplaced desire to become acceptable in the eyes of the world. So how do churches compromise today? Well, I'll give you a few examples. You'll perhaps be glad to know I won't be naming names, but I, I think it's important that we see the, the, the ways that this happens in our world. The first one is that where churches seek to dial down the exclusivity of Christ, who seek to, in some sense, um, present a Christ that says all people will be able to find a way to God without me. That says, you know, God-fearing Muslims or Jews uh, will, will be able to find their way to God and they do not need Christ. We, we are so uncomfortable. We find it uncomfortable to have to say to people, actually, no, it is only through Christ that you will find salvation. I'm going to spend time in Cornwall uh, next weekend. I'll see my religious Jewish aunt. And she may well ask me again. We may well have another conversation where we say, let's just, what, what do you think about my faith? And I, it will be painful but I'll have to say, I believe salvation is only through the Messiah, only through Jesus Christ. That he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We so easily forget that, so easily want to gain some sense of respectability in the world. Second of all, we dial down the judgment of Christ. We seek to present a nice version of Jesus, a kind of sanitized version of Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't offend, who doesn't feel intolerant, who feels in some say, in way, in vogue with the spirit of the age, which just kind of accepts everybody. But we miss, when you do that, you're not presenting the real Christ, you're presenting a sanitized, twisted version. Have we forgotten that this is the Christ who is full of holiness, who one day will come back to judge the living and the dead and will bring a great division between people, between those who believe in him and those who don't, who've rejected him. If we lose that, we lose the justice the justice that our hearts are longing for. We lose the sense of holy righteousness that we see in this risen Christ with blazing eyes of fire. We, we get a tame and, and ultimately incorrect view of Christ. Or perhaps there'll be those Christians who deny the authority of the Bible because there are parts of the Bible that offend every culture. In different ways, different cultures will be offended in different ways but inevitably we'll find parts of the Bible offensive and different to our worldview. And so there are churches or church, uh, voices in the church who will 
seek to deny the authority of the Bible. Essentially, perhaps even, it won't be very subtle, but actually what they're, in attempting to try and ignore parts of the Bible, they will deny the sense that the Bible is God's word to us. The authority that is implicit in the idea that God has spoken his word into being. Now, don't get me wrong, of course, there'll be some of you who aren't Christians, you've got all sorts of questions about how can you believe the Bible is God's word, and also, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when Christians seek to accommodate to the cultural skepticism and almost go along with the denial that God has spoken in his word. And this is the oldest trick in the book. This is, goes back right to the Garden of Eden, where Satan says to Eve, did God really say? When we deny the authority of God's word, when we deny the fact that God has spoken it's like the card, in the middle of the, car, the tower of cards, is pulled. And suddenly, you can believe nothing. Because if God hasn't authoritatively spoken, then, then what, what am I to believe? What's left for me? You know, you heard about Thomas Jefferson, who, who, wrote, uh, who, sorry, not wrote, who took a Bible and removed all the supernatural elements because they didn't fit with his understanding. Now, might, uh, the world might take a different bits of the Bible out, but he took the supernatural bits out. And if you just imagine for a moment what the Bible looks like without all the supernatural bits, it's nothing. It, I would just fall apart, surely. It's a living metaphor in a way that you cannot start to chop it up and say, I believe these bits, but not these bits. There's a denial of the authority of the Bible. It's destructive. The next one, perhaps the most controversial, is uh, churches who argue and preach uh, an affirmal of same-sex relationships, who deny that the Bible speaks authoritatively to rule out relationships between the same sex. Such is the cultural pressure. Day after day, we see different church leaders essentially giving in what appears like a cultural fight to say, yes, okay, we'll go along with orthodoxy. Just yesterday, a bishop, retiring bishop in the Church of England did the same. And really what you've got to see is this isn't just, um, you might say, what's the harm? Well, this is endorsing and ultimately tolerating sin. Of course, we'll have questions. Of course, we'll, have, we'll wrestle with, with this. But ultimately, it's bowing down to cultural idols because people will say this, people will do this. Where, uh, for example, they'll say, how, it's impossible that Christ could ever require someone to not be in a relationship, to be celibate. And really what that's actually doing is it's for bowing down to the cultural idol of sex and relationships that says someone cannot be happy unless they're in a relationship. What an offense that is to every single person, every person who is living a single life who says you can only be happy if you're in a relationship. What an offense that is to the the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a single man. To say that you need to be in a relationship to be happy is to say that Christ wasn't fully human. Or the last one I would say is hyper-grace, where it's very subtle, but I think where churches seek to say because of the grace of God, you can live how you want. Now, in one sense, we say absolutely, the grace of God is abundant. That there is never a kind of, it never dries up, that it keeps on coming and coming and coming. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how you live. We even see this in this passage in Revelation where, he dis- where, where Jesus says, and that all the church will know that I am he who searches heart and mind and I will give to you each according to your works. Christ will judge even the lives of Christians in some sense and will give you according to your works. Even if there is grace, it, doesn't, it matters how you live. The real danger here is that some teachers have the label of Christ, but they do not preach an authentic Christ, and that is tragic. Why is this so problematic? Because I think we will all experience this, this desire, this 
tension in a sense to want to filter ourselves or even to pressure our leaders to preach a kind of non-offensive gospel. Well, it's a problem because, one, because false teachers are leading people to hell. It's the unpalatable truth, the reality, that as they endorse some of these things, they lead people ultimately away from Christ to an eternity away from him. They're like the false teachers of Jeremiah who say, Jeremiah chapter 6 describes these false prophets. It says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They dress, another translation, they dress the wound as though it were not serious. Essentially, they are people who say, yes, it's not a big deal. It's fine. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're lying. They're leading people away from the risen Christ. They're leading people to a path which ultimately leads to destruction. That's the first reason why this matters. Secondly, it talks about false teachers facing judgment for this. Christ describes how those who lead his um, little ones in the church into sin, well, it'd be like their millstone is attached to their neck. There is judgment for those who lead the people astray. I think this desire to compromise with the culture is fundamentally misconceived because it follows the exact opposite missional strategy of Christ. See how Christ approaches the world. He doesn't seek to smooth over the differences with the world. He doesn't seek to, say, accommodate the world. He seeks to confront the world. He seeks to show the, his listeners that where they are in direct opposition to him. He says to the great Pharisees and Sadducees, the learned people of his culture, you think by these scriptures that you know me, you, that you know God, but actually nothing of the sort. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Christ diagnoses the sickness. He wounds to heal. He reveals to the people who are listening to him the error of their ways so that they might come to him. And if the church takes the opposite approach, if the church tries to dial down the difference, then what diagnosis do we have left? What difference do we have left? The early church takes the same approach. The early church looked radically different. It didn't, it didn't, the early church exploded against all the odds, against oppression from the Roman Empire, against the threat of death, just like you heard about Herod Antipas, and about Antipas in this story. But it didn't explode by being the same as everybody else. It exploded by being different, by operating onto a fundamentally different ethic, by being, uh, holding to the radical love of Christ, by willing to lay down their lives, by preaching a radical message. Think about Peter when he's uh, in, in, you see this all the way through the book of Acts, he's preaching to the Jewish people and, they, and he's talking about the Christ and he says, that, you know, one passage in Acts chapter 2, he says, uh, the Lord, uh, the, uh, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. But he adds this extra clause, he says, whom you crucified. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He says, just for any avoidance of doubt, the one you crucified is actually the Lord and Messiah. I mean, what a strategy to win friends and influence people, to remind them that they, they crucified him. It's like he wants them to see the error of their ways, and only then will they come to repentance. So the great danger is that the church loses its distinctiveness. But the real, I think the ultimate reason why this matters is because Christ loves his bride. Christ loves his bride. He doesn't want his bride drawn away to a false vision of who he is. He wants his bride living, loving and living with the real thing. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the leaders of the Ephesian church and telling them that they will face these same false teachers. 
And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. Saying, pay careful attention to the church, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus died for this church. He loves his bride. He cares for his bride so much that he was willing to die for her. He was formed out of his very death. He cares about his bride, and so he doesn't want his bride to be drawn away to false teachers or to a false understanding of who he is. He wants his bride to walk in love for him. So how do we avoid this? Well, we, the way to avoid the count of it is to fixate yourself on the real and genuine Christ. That as you grow in understanding of who Christ is, you will know, you will just smell when you're being presented to a fake Christ. Think about this picture of a, of a husband and wife. Anybody who's married will tell you that if you're in a marriage with someone, you want to grow in understanding for them. You delight in them. You grow in knowledge of them. So of course, as, as the bride of Christ, as the people of God, the church, we want to grow in that same understanding. We want to fixate ourselves on Christ to grow in knowledge of who he is so that we can tell the counterfeit. That's why we read scripture both comprehensively and regularly because we don't want to build a Christ in our own image. A Christ who just conforms to our personal preferences or tendencies. I love the grace of God. I love the mercy of Christ. But if I only fixate on that, actually I'm bored, I could get kind of heretical. I need to see the full Christ. That's why I wanted to look, look at these, these different uh, words from the church in the book of Revelation. Because I think they, they give us some freshness as we hear the voice of Christ in a different way. So that was communal. But let's just look at individually briefly. Just like each of these people, Christ is calling each of us to have nothing to do with the pervasive idolatry in our city, to be a people who have eyes only for him, and this should be reflected both in our public allegiance and our attitude towards him. First of all, you have to see the wrongness of this idolatry that we might be tempted into. You see, in, in, a chap, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is speaking to a very similar issue. He's speaking to a people who are also faced with the prospect of eating meat, which has been sacrificed to idols. And when you think about that, you just got to say, what is the big deal? Just for a moment, if I bring you a steak and I say, this has been blessed and given over to the idols, you say, what's the problem? It's still a steak. It's still enjoy it. What, why, is, why is it such a big deal? But Paul says, no, flee from idolatry. Even then, do not consume this meat that's been sacrificed publicly to idols. Why is it so wrong? Because we've forgotten the wrongness of idolatry. We've forgotten that this is the living God whose first commandment is to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. The error, when you heard Balaam and Jezebel, they would have shuddered because it would have reminded them that these are the people who took the people away from their true, um, the one who they were made to worship. Human beings were made to worship the living God. God made our hearts for him. And until we find him, our hearts are restless. Our hearts were made to worship God, to depend on him, to be satisfied by him, to desire him. This is the fundamental intention, the wiring of the human heart, to be in relationship with God. And suddenly, when we, re when we remember how we were made, the purpose of our, of our hearts, so to speak, then suddenly we see the wrongness of to be drawn to all sorts of other God substitutes. It's as wrong as a husband turning away from his wife, as wrong as adultery. 
This speaks of a calling to uncompromising devotion to Christ. I think this includes a sense of uncompromising public allegiance. Christ is calling these people to publicly acknowledge a higher loyalty to him that stands above any other loyalty as they choose not to participate in all sorts of different idolatrous rituals. And I think many of us, will be, will be, it will be called upon us to make the same moments and sta- um, there'll be moments in our lives where, where we will be called to give public allegiance to Christ, to say Christ is more important to me than this other call on my life. As the metal worker in Thyatira would have sat down to that meal and, uh, in the trade guild, and at the beginning there's a speech giving honour to Zeus, saying we eat this meal in honour of you. Would they, well, they would have had to do something about that. They can't just sit there and eat. They have to say, no, public, I'm sorry, I can't. And we too will have similar moments. Some of you know, I've, I've talked about this before, you'll be in workplaces where you might be called upon to live according to a different ethic, maybe asked to lie. In that moment, it'll be that moment you have to say, no, I've got a higher calling than my boss. I have a moment which I sincerely regret, which I think is an illustrate, a moment when I was given the opportunity to, to give public allegiance to Christ, and I chose not to. I worked for a big media corporation, and I was part of a team that worked for someone who worked for the COO, and our, my desk was basically directly opposite to him, and most people had gone home, and it was, um, I, obviously, he was a big dog. I wanted his approval. I wanted him to think I was great, all that kind of stuff, and uh, he comes around to my desk with me and another guy, and he says, just, he just says, type in this this girl's name, this, basically this, this model, this scantily clad model. Essentially, he's like, type in the computer uh, uh, to bring up an image of this woman who is, you know, yeah, it's not porn, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and I hope none of this, happens, this doesn't happen to you. But in that moment, I had a choice. Are you going to give public allegiance to Christ? Are you going to say, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm sorry, I just don't do that. That's, that's not something that I think is acceptable for me as a follower of Christ. Or do you say, yeah, and I, I just typed away to my regret. There'll be moments in your professional life where I think where you'll be called to give, to say, are you a Christ follower or will you put your career first? For some of you, the question will be social approval or Christ. You know this because you know that you filter what you believe. You you avoid, some of you avoid telling people you're a Christian. I think that's the same dilemma here. So this calls for uncompromising public allegiance. But below that, it, it calls for uncompromising affection. It calls for a desire. Remember that idolatry is fundamentally a question of desire. The reason why these idols had power is because of what they represented, whether it be beauty or or love or experience. And, And ultimately, you've got to remember that idolatry starts in the heart. Ezekiel 14 says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. So this forces us to ask the question, what has taken the place of God in your life? Are there things that are more precious to you? Given the choice, are there things that you would rather lose Christ than them? I think we know we have idols. We know we've, we've eventually attached our affection to something else above God. When, we, when things start to play the, the kind of role of God in our lives, they start to be God substitutes. Think about how God is meant to be our security. But so often we look to other things as the source of our security, as the, as, the, as the thing that we say, this is okay, that even if things go wrong, I will have this so I will be safe. It's meant to be that we say, actually, it's only because I trust the living God that whatever goes wrong in my life, I can trust him. 
But instead, we look at our career. We look to our job. We look to a certain amount of finances. We look to perhaps that British passport that some of us came to the UK for that was, a, that was in some sense a, a kind of sign of security that we might look for. A false security, because you have no idea what will happen to the UK. It's nothing compared to the living God. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You can trust, put your trust in all sorts of other things, but they will crumble. Second of all, God is meant to be the ultimate source of satisfaction. Of course, we enjoy very many gifts that God gives us, but when we push comes to shove, what is the ultimate source in your, of satisfaction in your life? What brings you the greatest joy, the greatest sense of contentment? Because Christ would say it should be him. It should be the preciousness of his love that is the deepest source of contentment in our life. The problem is that idolatry feels neutral or harmless. It just feels like, oh yeah, different people are attaching themselves to all sorts of things, but it's, it's just a kind of thing that won't lead to happiness. But it's more than that. We have to see the offense of idolatry. It's never neutral. You see, in the book of Revelation, one of the ways, one picture that describes this is the way in Revelation chapter 17, it describes the, the Babylonian prostitute. It speaks of a, um, a picture which is really rather stark. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And this picture is intended to be a picture of Babylon. But really, in those, in those contexts, it would have been Rome. But you could replace Rome for London. And it says, in a way, there is a kind of choice between every believer. Will you, has Christ got your heart? Are you the bride attached to your great husband, Christ? Or are you tempted by the context you find yourself in, to love and adore and seduced away from Christ by this great prostitute. There are many things that are great about the city of London and we have great common cause and, and enjoy being in this city. But it gives a picture saying, look, actually, for some of you, this whole city may seduce you away from Christ, may tell you you're someone, may promise you a good time, may give you all sorts of hedonistic delights, and may draw you away from Christ. It feels harmless, but actually it's dangerous. So how do we do this then? Let me close really with this question. How do we do this? In a city of idolatry, it's so easy to give in, to make peace with the world, and to worship the same gods as everybody else worships. The only way to be different is to remember that Christ is better than anything else we might be tempted to serve. This starts, this sense of being willing to be uncompromising starts with a willingness to suffer. It takes us back to Smyrna last week. Because in order to be uncompromising, you need to face the possibility that your uncompromising allegiance to Christ may have a cost. These guys lost jobs, lost status, lost friendships, lost lives. And the only way they were willing to bear that loss, we said last week, was because they were willing to say no to those good gifts because they had something better. 
The only way you're willing to lose these other things, to be uncompromising in your stance, is because you say Christ is better than everything else I might lose. Remember what Paul said, he counted them as rubbish compared to the great gift of knowing Christ. So in order to be uncompromising, you need to believe that Christ is better. And so really this draws us back to what we learned in the first week. The question this asks ourselves is like the Ephesian church, do you love him? Do you long for him? Has Christ captured your heart? Do you see that Christ tastes better? That his love is better than life? If you don't feel that, then of course you'll give up your allegiance when the going gets tough. Of course you'll be tempted to worship the same gods as everyone else around you. Unless you say, the the Lord that I worship is more satisfying and better than anything else. It is love, love for Christ that will cause us to sacrifice. This is why I think Song of Songs speaks of that, uh, the power of love. It says, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Many waters cannot quench love. It is our love for Christ that will sustain us in our desire to be a people who do not compromise. So cultivate that love. Ask God to give you that love. Set your gaze on Christ that you might see his beauty. See, you know, in the words of Song of Solomon, see your lover running over the hills, pursuing you, even in the fickleness of your heart. See Christ's pursuit of you, his love for you, his desire for you, his relentless desire for your heart. When you hear him say those words, you are mine, how can we stay cold to that? Really, I think this comes back to a conviction that Christ is superior to the idols. Even in this letter, even as these words to the church, Christ is trashing the idols that they might be tempted to worship. He starts in the book of Revelation, this letter to Pergamon, by saying, this is uh, the one who, when I get there, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Even in that, when he talks about a sharp two-edged sword, he's, in a sense, mocking the, the Roman claim to have the power of the sword. The power of the emperor was this power of the sword. And Christ is saying, no, I am the one of the power of the sword. My sword, my word is more powerful than any power the emperor might claim to have. Because my word will be the word of judgment. My word will be the word that brings the universe to the end, that establishes my kingdom in this world. Or the Dionysian cult, as they sought these great ecstatic ecstasies and filled with debauchery. They're just trying to get hedonistic pleasure like so many people around us. But we know that that hedonistic pleasure, it rises for a moment and then it fades. And the same way, the contentment of Christ is so much more satisfying. The, the love of Christ is a much more settled and ongoing sense of contentment than the up and down of hedonistic thrills of a night out. The reason why we're willing to be uncompromising is we're intolerant of substitutes because we found Christ and he satisfies our deepest longings. And we say, how could we worship anything else when we have Christ? But what about when you fall? What about when you fail? Many of us will say, this is hard and I failed many times and my heart is gripped by all sorts of idolatries. As I was preparing this sermon, I felt the Lord putting his finger on my heart and saying, Are you doing this for the approval of other people? Are you doing this so people will think you're writing a good sermon? Or even there, my idolatry was exposed to me. Well, what you've got to hear is Christ pursues his adulterous bride. Even as she goes off running after false lovers, God pursues his adulterous spouse. 
The book of Hosea is this great picture of Israel who has gone off pursuing other gods. The the Lord describes it in great uh, detail when he says, for their mother has played the whore. She's whored herself out. But then he says, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth. I will draw her back to me. I will allure her. I will draw her back to the days of her youth when she felt delight in me, when I rescued her out of Egypt and when she sang of my praises. Christ pursues you, brothers and sisters, that even as you run after false God, Christ comes to you and says, I want your heart. Come back to me, dear bride. Come back to me. I love you. He pursues you, but he doesn't just pursue you. He cleans you up. The book of Ephesians describes how he takes his his bride and prepares her. He washes her with the word. He intends to make her spotless. He pursues you, he draws you to himself, and he cleans you up. And then he prepares you for that great marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride will meet with her husband, where we will be united face to face with the living God, where we will see the face of, forgive me if this whole love of language is unhelpful, we will see the face of the one who loves us, who desires us, who came over the horizon to, in pursuit of us. Here in Revelation 19, the great shouts of joy. There I heard that seemed to be the, ho- the voice of the great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Brothers and sisters, hear Christ's grace to you. Hear his pursuit of you. Hear his love for you. His bride who's so tempted so often by false gods. But hear his desire that you put away those false gods. Hear his desire that we become an uncompromising people who are not titillated away, seduced away by the world, but remain exclusively committed to him. Exclusively committed to the authentic Christ, exclusively committed to worshipping and enjoying him and preparing ourselves when we will meet him face to face. That is our calling as the people of God.